you have your Bibles, you should turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6 today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Lessons from 1 John, becoming battle ready. We're going to be talking about obedience as the proof of life today. When I say the proof of life, kind of playing on that thing, sometimes when people are kidnapped, uh, many times law enforcement are looking for a proof of life that they are still alive. And so generally that's through maybe a, maybe a phone call or, a, or some kind of a glimpse of the person that's been taken captive. Well, I was thinking about obedience today in the Christian life, especially as it pertains from, uh, to our verses in verses 3 through 6 of 1 John 2. Obedience as the proof of life for the Christian. Now, what I want you to be careful of is to avoid a legalistic thought process as we think about this, all right? But let's let the text speak to us. Let's let the, the Holy Spirit drive its truth to us. So we're going to be reading then 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him... And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Clearly, the theme of those verses is obedience. Doing what Jesus did. Douglas McMillan, in the book that I have been using along parallel to this study in 1 John, talking about the humanity of Jesus and how he lived as an example of what it is to be a perfect man in full reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. He writes, Obedience with a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men, which belongs only to obedience, is one of the fortified strongholds of the godly life. In other words, obedience lived before God without harboring sin, without trying to hide sin, secret sin, unconfessed sin, is one of the fortified strongholds of the godly life. Now, it's not a life that's sinless. It's just a life that recognizes that its dependence to live is only in Christ alone. And so we seek then to be pleasing to the Lord. A godly life is little more than a surrendered life to the Lordship of Christ. So he writes, Indeed, it is the surest hallmark of the Spirit's regenerating and sanctifying work in the heart of man. Obedience and the indwelling fullness of the Spirit are correlates of the godly life. Did you hear that? Obedience and the indwelling fullness of the Spirit are correlates of the godly life. They go together. They always go together. The entire New Testament witness teaches us that obedience is the most characteristic mark of the Spirit's saving work in man. It is the very stuff of holiness and true godliness. People who are truly filled with the Spirit will demonstrate it along the same avenues as the Master Himself. 
They will be holy men and women, people who love the commandments of God and who strive by His grace to keep them. Obedience, then, as the ultimate proof of life, as it's lived out and recognized by the world around us. Now by this, so with those things in mind, we'll read the text again. Now by this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now do we understand the power that comes into that? Now by this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Because He who says, oh yeah, I know Jesus, but never does anything that Jesus does, and lies, and, and, and is constantly in a state of sin, the Bible says the truth is not in that person. Whoever keeps his word, though, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. These are powerful statements of identity for the Christian life. There are, and just again, to keep legalism at bay over here, like a like a big dog behind a fence trying to get at us. Just understand, you cannot manufacture genuine, sanctifying obedience in your life. You cannot fake it till you make it, in other words. But the godly life, the life that is surrendered before Jesus, warts and all, okay? Because we all have them. We know who we are. As one lady told Spurgeon once, trying to point out some of his flaws, I think he told her, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) If you really knew everything, you wouldn't even be here probably. And that's how we all are. But the godly life relishes not in the, the good that he's able to do or she's able to do, but in the good that Christ has done. But legalism stands over there and says, oh, but look at your flaws. You're not yet good enough. So don't, don't slip over there, okay? Don't, don't go over there. A.W. Tozer, he put this well this week. He said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. Leave it to Tozer to make such a simply profound statement. You will find in your Christian life, you may be, a young, you may be young in the faith. Relatively speaking, you could have been saved maybe months or a year or two years or three years ago. You're young in the faith. It could be you've been saved 30 years ago and you're still a baby because you haven't grown much. But God, in His sanctifying process in your life, will bring you closer to that which you're supposed to be, which is what? The ultimate, the image of Jesus Christ. That's who He's conforming you to. So that's why the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right, by the renewing of your mind. So our mind then seems to be in Scripture a central place where the battle happens in this idea of obedience. One of the greatest verses in Scripture, if Sharon were in here, she's praying, she would know. But as a man thinks in himself, so is he. So what you spend your time thinking on will generally come out of your life. 
If it's always conflict and, and, and those things, and that may be a battle you face. Just so you know, when it comes to sin in the Christian life, there are no things, that, there are no areas that are off limits. It hits everybody in different ways. You may think, if I could just gain power and victory over uh, my sexual life, or if I could just bring power and victory over my I cuss a lot, so if I could just stop cussing, or or if I could just uh, get get a grip on this anger thing, and I would be golden. And I just want to tell you that'd be great. And there'll be something in behind it. Okay, it's like layers of an onion. You get the out one off, you get one underneath, and then so on and so on and so on. And that's I think that's the idea. By the time you make glory, you're a, you've been a work in progress, and so. Finally, you get down into where we would call the innocuous things of what's convicting me now is that I allowed my, my thoughts to make me angry and I didn't catch it until an hour later. Praise God you're growing, okay? Because th- that you thought of it at all. But, but to encourage some of you by the very fact that you're convicted of sin before God, praise God, it's a testimony of saving faith. So let the dog bark in the cage saying you're not good enough. I just want to remind you all, you're not. Okay? None of us are. According to Walverden Zuck, which is a, the, uh, it's a theological thing, uh, uh, dictionary, a lexicon that I use, readers who wish to decide whether their experience of fellowship with God has led them really to know Him in a personal way, John gives a simple test, and we're looking at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. There are some of you here today that may struggle with assurance. You say, I don't know if I'm saved, and I don't know that if I'm lost. I don't know where I'm at. And so John here gives a really good thing. He says, Here's how you know if you know Jesus. Here's how you gnosko that you gnosko. Okay? If you keep His commandments. Now, first of all, what commandments? Well, later you'll see that John mentions love a lot. That you love one another. It's the first and greatest commandment. Right? Now, there's other commandments of Jesus too. And essentially, I would sum them up with the commandments are this. Okay? All of it. But do you have a love for the brethren? Do you have a love for God? I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Because some of us have brains that are just uh, like jigsaw puzzles, kaleidoscopes, spider webs, sand on top of a grate, okay, and it just falls through. We're just all the time. For every thought, there's a counter thought. I'm one of those. Well, I got to go back to litmus test. When I sin, do I know it? Yes, I do. You better believe I do. And in my Christian life, that has been the number one sign or of assurance of saving faith that I've had. I know that I've offended God. How do I know? Because I love the Lord my God. And when I sin, I... Huh, this isn't going to be correct according to the gentle and lowly book for, for the sake of English vernacular and my 
simplicity of it, I would say, I feel that I hurt him or I offend him. I don't, li- I don't want to offend him. I love him. See, when I offend my wife, I don't want to offend her. I love her. I, don't, I want to, I want to uh, uh, make her glad and, 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 and happy and delight. I want her to delight in me, and I want that and all the more with God. And so when I sin, that's what happens because I love him. And so do you love God? Do you have that when that happens? When you sin, do you sense you've broke his heart, so to speak? If you don't, the first thing, the first way you're going to know that, that you don't love God is that you won't even think about it. It's a non-issue. There are things that are belief systems in this world that I literally do not think about. At all. I don't care. Because they're not real. I don't give, I don't have any problems with them. But when it comes to the things of God, I do. It is my Achilles heel, but only for God's purpose. So do you love God's people? Do you love His commandments? Jesus says in John 14, verse 21 through 24, He who has my commandments and keeps them. Can I go back just a second? If you go to verse 3, well, I thought it was on the slide, it's not. He says, in verse 3 of 1 John, it says, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And then if you go here in, first, in John 14, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them. Do you think there's some kind of significance behind saying you love God and keeping his commandments? Did Jesus talk about, hey, here's my commandments. Use them when you need them. Like that one commercial. I can't think about it right now. It's your money. You I forget what his name is. But uh, someone probably knows who that is here, don't they? That's right. I can't remember his name. Good thing. That's, thank you so much for now I'm ruined. JG, it's your money. <laughs> you use it when you need it. But Jesus says, do you, you need to keep them. He who keeps them. Now back to what Zuck is saying. John gave this simple test. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And then he says the two occurrences of the word know, or gnosko in the Greek, in this verse are the first of 23 times John used the word in this epistle. 23 times, mind you, okay, in five chapters he uses this word gnosko, that you may know, that you may know. That you may know. So clearly John wants us to know that we are in him. So obedience is the condition of such knowing in what we would call relational knowledge. We know him relationally. One of my first professors of history when I started college a long time ago at a junior college was a man who... He had really big arms. That was it. It's kind of funny. He worked out his arms. And he lived in his car. That's what they said. I mean, it's a lot of, lot of uh, you know, a lot of things about uh, professors. But he knew the Bible very well. He would always quote Scripture, always quote Scripture. And then he'd turn right around and just try to eviscerate it. Just gut it. 
He was mad at God. He hated God. And he let everyone know he did. And he challenged anybody to come and prove him wrong. Now, when you're that young and you know you don't do much because you don't know enough. But the point of what I'm trying to say is you can know about God and not know him. Okay? So John is saying this kind of gnosko, this kind of knowledge, this 23 recurring themes of knowledge is relational. And John 14 is one of those places where we see it as Jesus speaks it, but he goes on to write, it is also the means by which a Christian can be sure that he has really come to know his Lord. So here's what Jesus said. And if you're struggling with assurance, here you go. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, don't miss the backside of this. I will manifest myself to him. I will make myself known to that person. I I love you. You will love me. My love is in you, and you will know me relationally. I will speak into your soul. I will bring you comfort and presence. I will give you direction. I will make provision for you. I will take care of you. You are now my child. That's the relationship. Well, Judas, (laughs) who knew of Jesus, didn't really know him, said, Lord... Because he said, Lord. Oh, after all, he said, Lord. He's a Christian. No, he's not. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So, Clearly, knowing the Word, loving the Lord, these go hand in hand. When you're, when you're born again, or as the southern pastor in California, remember Carolina said, when you're born again, okay, when you're born again, something changes inside of you that is bigger than any kind of earthquake on the Richter scale. It is a seismic shift in reality. God comes into your soul and you now have an abiding presence that you didn't have before. Shall I use the word possessed? You can use it in a positive way. You have, your life is, you're possessing God above. He is dwelling inside your soul. Now you love things of God and you hate the things of the world. You may run into conflict there sometimes and it truly is a conflict of interest because you still have some interest in things but the conflict is on God's part in your life okay and he convicts you of sin it's a beautiful thing that he will manifest himself to us and that we will love him and that he is at home with us The proof of life in Christ is found then in keeping His Word. What are you obedient to? You say, I'm obedient to Christ. Well, how do I know you're obedient to Christ? How do I know that? 
talk is cheap, right? Do you do what Christ said do? Well, verse 3, we keep his commandments. Jesus said his commandments are not burdensome. Do you, do you, do you want to do that? Here's one. I'm not meaning to pick at anybody, but a little. But do you go to church and are you faithful to your church? Why should you be faithful to your church? Because you get discounts at the grocery store. No, not really. But would it help? Incentives seems to be the thing these days. Trying to get people to do that, which they don't want. But your incentive is the blessing of Jesus because of the love relationship that you have. You want to know what my incentive is to spend time with Rindy? Just her, man. That's all. Just her. Because where does she live all the time? Right in here, man. That's how it should be with Jesus. So, saint, have you grown a little drift? Has there a drift happened? Draw near to Jesus. He says he'll draw near to you. But counter. So, one of the assurances of salvation, I said, is the inner desire to keep the word of God. But counter to this is the indisputable proof of false belief dwelling in the one who lives with no concern for the word of God. I actually read a statement once that said, in some article, it was years ago, blah, 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 and, and I'm a Christian and I don't even believe in Jesus. So, there you go. When the love of God in verse 5 dwells within us, then the love of God emanates from us. Look, Jesus said that you're going to bear fruit if you're in Christ. Now, that may not be really attractive fruit sometimes, I have an apple tree that I wish didn't exist. It gets worms every year from codling moths. They land on it, bite it, put its larva down inside of it. As that apple grows, so does the worm inside, and then it hatches and comes out of there, ruins the apples, and so you have to spray, and it's just a pain. I got a peach tree that's amazing. Anyway, so that, that fruit is there, and it's, and it's an apple. I mean, it is an apple, and you could nibble around the, the, the dark spots. Yeah, right? But it is a real apple tree. It is legit. If it were a Christian, it would be a Christian apple tree. It is a, it is a saved tree, but it's not really walking the way it should because it's infected with worms. And that's what sin is in the Christian life. Things innocuous like bad TV programs and bad music and bad thoughts and bad attitudes and just, you know, antecedent bad on front of anything. When the love of God dwells within us, then the love of God emanates from us. And then lastly, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. A.T. Robertson says this really well by saying... There should be a continuous performance, not a spasmatic spurt. Right? How's, here's the best way to know what a spasmatic spurt of unchristian Christianity is. This is exactly what it looks like, and you will all know what I'm, what I'm about to tell you. 
There you are. You're at the drive-thru. You have your french fries. You have fry sauce in a little packet. You tear off the little packet and it goes... Every single time it happens. That's what a spasmatic spurt is. And you're like, okay. Well, the best kind of fry sauce comes in the tub. That's the lid. You take off the whole lid and you can just dip till your heart's content. Even like a, that's a three or four fry deal there, right? That's the kind of Christian you want to be. I'm sorry, but you understand it. That's where we've come to in America these days. You, you don't want to be just a spasmatic spurt. You want to be a consistent tub of emanating Christ's presence. Lastly, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that's this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you go on and you read past Galatians into chapter 3, I think, it will say, having begun in the Spirit, are you now seeking to be made perfect in the flesh? Christian, it can happen to you. Don't, don't, don't let that happen to 